It's Andrew. Must admit, I was rather glad this morning when Jordan was able to get the lights to come on. I did think to myself, I don't know if we'll be able to read my Bible with the, without the light above me. So um, we're fine. So we're going to turn, as has already been mentioned, and you know, to Exodus chapter 40. And we'll take time to read this, the concluding chapter of the book of Exodus. Exodus 40 at the first verse. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all round and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that's in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle, he laid its bases, and set up its frames, and put in its poles, and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle, and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony, and put it into the ark, and put the poles on the ark, and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, and set up the veil of the screen, and screened the ark of the testimony, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, 
They washed as the Lord commanded Moses, and he erected the court round the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all the journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And the Lord will bless what we've read from what is indeed his holy word. Well, we'll reach the end of Exodus. Um, and this really is a culmination, uh, this, especially the last um, few verses, the last uh, 34 to 38, isn't it? So five verses, for my sums right in my head there. And the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. What a transformation from where we began uh, in Exodus uh, chapter 1 with the people um, in Egypt and a Pharaoh who did not remember Joseph. And now the glory of the Lord has uh, come to dwell in the tabernacle amongst his people. And God had covenanted with the patriarchs. You may think of Abraham's covenant and also with Isaac and with Jacob that he would make a great people and bless them. And they had become a sizable people. They had become a numerous people. I think uh, I might have mentioned before when speaking that when you piece the timeline together for Abraham, you know, when Abraham died, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. So Abraham never saw the great multitude that were to be his descendants. But of course, we remember that when God told him it would happen, he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. But if Abraham had lived till this day, which uh, is obviously a bit of a foolish supposition since it was hundreds of years later, but just imagine it, and he had seen the people um, as they were there at the end of Exodus, he would have been beginning to think, God is really working um, from those who have come from me and he is fulfilling his covenant to make a great nation. But of course, God had made a covenant with these people, these people of whom we were, we were reading, Moses, Aaron, and those who followed Moses, the children of Israel as they were at the time. And the, the essence of that was that he would bring them to the promised land and that they would follow in his laws the Ten Commandments, yes, but all of the other laws that God had set out through Moses. And here we see at the end of the book this great culmination and God's visible presence with them. And it becomes their guide on their journey to this land into which God has taken them. So it must have had a great impact as the people saw this. Well, as we, as we start to think about it in some detail, the, the first part 
um, really up to verse 33, um, is all about the erection, the anointing, and the consecration of the tabernacle, and the anointing and consecration of Aaron and his sons as priests. It's interesting that as we look at the, at the, at the beginning there, in verse 2, uh, the first thing that God said to Moses was, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. This was a new year. It was the second year um, since they'd come out of Egypt. Now, the Passover was the 14th day of the first month. I know that, so it wasn't quite the full year from when they had left Egypt. But they'd spent a year... And this was a new year beginning. And if you cast your minds back to that time when they were about to leave and the Passover was being uh, established and God was speaking to Moses, God had said to them, this month shall be the first month. So God had set a calendar in place and God had wanted to emphasize to them that things were going to be different and things were going to be new. And here we are. On day one of the new year, that's the second year, as we read uh, down in verse 16 or 17, day one of the second new year, the tabernacle is erected and all of the components that we've been thinking about for the last several weeks are put in their place. And I don't know if you noticed as we're reading it, that consistently the words as the Lord had commanded Moses appear. So Moses was doing what God had commanded him. Great lesson in that. We'll maybe come back to that later on. But the Lord had commanded Moses. I'm not going to go back over all the details of all the things we've been learning um, in the first tranche and then uh, reminded again by Kevin um, two weeks ago um, as we've come into the second tranche of going through Exodus in, in detail. But we will look at some of, the, some of the things in particular in the course of looking at it. So these components had been made. And as Andrew said, the craftsmen who had made them had done a fantastic job. You know, this lampstand, for example... <laughs> that Andrew mentioned, as you read about this being crafted from a single piece of gold, then great skill was involved. God, of course, had given these craftsmen the skill. That's, that's uh, recorded for us. But nonetheless, there was great skill. These things were not just, you know, put together on the cheap. They weren't just haphazardly put together. Great attention was put into them. There was expense in all of, the, all of the materials, but not just that. The people who made them put huge effort into them, and it was all there. Don't know where it would have been before it was put together. You know, we've seen slides at various times. Kevin had some uh, slides the other week of, it, of the assembled tabernacle. But just... Before this, these components would have been in various parts, sitting about somewhere. But what we're having here is that God is instructing Moses of how to put them together 
for the pattern that God wanted. And of course, that pattern, as we've thought about in the past, very much had a message to be uh, conveyed to the people of Israel. People would enter into the courtyard at that first door and the first thing they would have to do would be offer a sacrifice. Without a sacrifice, without recognition of their sin and a sacrifice being made, there was nowhere to progress. For the priests who were to go into the tent of meeting, washing was necessary. The sacrifice might have been made, but the continual washing of the, the dirt of the day-to-day from their hands and their feet that we read about, Aaron being washed and his sons, that had to be washed off. And then, of course, once they got inside, there was the lampstand on the left and the table of showbread on the right. And we've thought about the, the clear messaging uh, of the Lord Jesus being the light of the world and of him being the bread of life. And then in front of the veil, just in front of the veil, opposite side from the door, there was the altar of incense on which was burned this incense that was uniquely used for this purpose, not to be used for anything else. And it was burned and the aroma filled the holiest of the holies as well as it permeated through the veil. And then inside the veil, on the other side of the veil, inside the holiest place of all, there was the ark and the mercy seat sitting on top. And it was into there, into this confined space, into this place that Moses is told about first, that God was going to come and dwell and speak with his people via, via Moses. And we've thought about how, of course, in past days, we've thought about how these things, of course, allude to the Lord Jesus. But it's interesting that as these Pieces, these components were being taken that had been crafted so carefully. I'm sort of surmising that at this point in time, they were just things. Yeah. They were beautiful things. They were tremendously beautiful things. They were tremendously valuable things. But at this point, they were things that had been made according to God's instructions. But when we get to chapter 40, as we know it, the significant thing is that Moses is told that he'll take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. And also the things that were outside, the altar of burnt offering and the laver. So you may go back to my King James. The basin um, were to be anointed as well. And in the doing of this anointing, these things were being made holy. They were being set apart for God's use. 
God wanted these things to be known to be special because they were part and parcel of what he had established as the way to meet with him, the way in the Day of Atonement to achieve uh, the atonement for a year for the people, for example. And God wanted these things to be holy. There weren't anything special in that sense. They weren't holy of themselves. But it was in the act of anointing them and consecrating them in accordance with what God had commanded that they were set apart for God's use. And the place then would become special. And I think that's a, there's, a, there's an event there that was important. And in that event, God established the place that was suited for his dwelling place, for his visible glory here on earth. There's also a similar thought with Aaron and his sons. They were to be anointed and consecrated down at verse 13. And they were to be made to serve as priests. It's interesting that at the tail end of verse 15 it says, And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. In contrast, of course, to the Lord Jesus and the prefiguring character of Melchizedek, this wasn't a continuous and continual priesthood. It was a perpetual priesthood. It was one that kept on superseding itself. Aaron and then his sons and their sons and so on. And admittedly, by the time that the Lord was here on earth, that um, going down the family had disappeared and the high priest was a political appointment um, made to suit the political forces. But in God's plan, the high priests did their job and then, of course, they died. And then another one took over and then another one and then another one. And that's a great contrast with the priesthood of the Lord Jesus as we're taught so clearly in the book of Hebrews. But nonetheless, their anointing admitted them to this very particular order that God had ordained. It was a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. And the role that the high priest had was an extraordinarily special role. When you think of being able to go into the presence of God in the Day of Atonement once a year, the one person in the whole company of one or two million people who was able to do that was the high priest. This was the, this was the role into which they were being anointed. It's sad to, to see it having deteriorated, of course, but in terms of God's plan, God's plan was this privileged position for them. And then we start to read in verse 16 that this Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. And all of the things that we read about happened 
and they were done. And we read at the tail of uh, verse 33, so Moses finished the work. Moses finished the work. You know, he'd been at it for a while to get to this point. His calling had begun at the bush. He had seen the people, God's desire for the people to be um, brought out of Egypt um, being obstructed in God's plan, but being obstructed so many times by Pharaoh. And Moses was frustrated. They'd eventually made it out and they'd crossed the Red Sea and in no time at all, the people were grumbling and the people were complaining to Moses. But he'd persevered. He'd come down with the first set of tablets of stone and he smashed them to the ground in disgust when he saw how the laws that were written on them had been broken by the people while he was on the mountain. But he persevered. He didn't give up. He had a love for these people. In many senses, you get the impression that they drove him to distraction, but nonetheless, he loved these people. And you'll recall how he went back to God and pleaded and pleaded with God. When God had said, well, go up, but I'm not coming. You'll be going on your own. Go up to the promised land. It's there. You can have it, but I'll not be there. And Moses' plea was, paraphrasing it, well, if you're not going to be there, Lord, it's not worth being there. It's only worth going up if you're going to be there. It's you that's important, Lord. It's being with you in the promised land that matters. Not the, the milk and honey and the plentiful grain and all of these things. It's your presence in that place. And it's your leading to get there that, I've, that I value. These were the expressions that Moses had been putting before God as he fasted all these nights in the mountain and laid his heart bare before God and pleaded in prayer before God. Till God turned and said, I'll go with you. And they then had all of the instructions that we've been thinking about in previous weeks. And they made this equipment for this place in which God would dwell. And Moses built it. And he finished the work. Now, he didn't finish the journey of taking them. They weren't in the promised land yet. But this work that had been described in so much detail by God which was a massive undertaking. We read these tremendous words. Moses finished the work. And the lesson, as I say, is that he did it despite there having been so many reasons to give up. 
there were plenty of the people were giving up, giving up in their minds at various stages. At this point, they were mainly all on side. But Moses could easily have thrown in the towel. It required great strength of character from Moses to persevere, but he trusted God and was obedient to God, and he finished the work. So the tabernacle and all of the components associated with it became a whole, became an entity. They were all erected, positioned in one place for the first time on this first day of the new year, the first new year in their exodus. And these pictures that we've been seeing in the slides became a reality of the whole assembly, not assembly of people, but the whole assembly of components being visible together. Then, says verse 34, then when all of that had happened, the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And in these last few verses, a tremendous thing happens. It's the climax of the book of Exodus, really. It's a great point in the people's experience. And it must have been a tremendous thing for Moses. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. The place that was the tent for meeting God. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was that particular inner tent that was covered by our, our inner curtains, really, that were spread over the, the, the sort of um, frame, and then they were covered um, in turn by a, by a tent to give them protection. Um, from from the the weather, I guess, and also to to um, hide them to a certain extent. But the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Sometimes the term uh, gets used, the Shekinah glory. I remember when I was a youngster, that was a term that. A lot of people used to talk about I don't know when I last heard the term. Um, it's not a word that's used in the Bible, but it's a name that people have given to the visible manifestation of the glory of God on earth. So if you come across the term, that's, that's what the word uh, conveys. Um, although the word's not in the Bible, the concept is absolutely in Scripture. And we see it here. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And the immediate consequence of that was Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, five minutes beforehand, so to speak, whether it had been five minutes or an hour beforehand, Moses had been in there, setting everything up. Moses had been inside the tabernacle, inside the tent of meeting. He'd been inside the Holy of Holies. He had placed the Ark of the Testimony on its, in its position and sat the, uh, the mercy seat on top of it. 
Now, whether he was doing that on his own, that would probably be quite a feat. I really believe he was doing it with others' help. But they were in there, they were doing the work. And they put all these things together and then they'd been consecrated. But when the glory of the Lord filled the place, Moses couldn't go near it. Moses was unable to go into the tent because the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The emphasis is in the filling because the word appears twice. The phrase, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle appears in verse 34 and in verse 35. And the emphasis is not just in the glory of the Lord, but it's the fact that it filled the tabernacle. It doesn't say that God's glory entered into the tabernacle and had a, made an impression on it. But there's this fullness. And as I read it, I was, I was taken, of course, to Colossians 1, Colossians 1.19, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So again, there is this picturing looking forward to of, of Christ. But the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And it was some time before Moses was able to actually enter in and go in. Now, these verses from 34 down to the 38, um, there's a lot more detail in numbers about what happened around this time, and we can use what's there um, to, to expand on, on what went on, which we'll do. But before I think of what numbers has to say, uh, just remind ourselves of verse 36 onwards. Throughout all their journeys, this was as they went away from Sinai, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud wasn't taken up, then they didn't set out till the day that it was taken up. Right? So the cloud gave them direction, gave them instruction. And when it was the right time to go and when they had to stay put, and God's presence was not just some mysterious thing in the corner, but the presence of the glory of God, God used to lead them. And they were led by the glory of God. And whether it stayed or whether it moved. So the people, when the cloud was taken up, they left, and until the cloud was taken up, they remained put in the camp. And verse 39 tells us that the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So as the camp was surrounding the tabernacle as per the order that was subsequently set up and how the tribes were laid out, they could all see the pillar of cloud during the day. And at night, well, they wouldn't be able to see a pillar of cloud. So God's glory appeared to them as a fire. 
fire was in it by night. I think that it is within the cloud. So they could see the cloud by night as well as seeing the cloud by day. So they were constantly reassured of the presence of God as long as they followed the instructions. Now, if God's presence had gone on and it was time to move and they decided not to move, well, they wouldn't have seen God's presence anymore. So there's a, there's a lesson in there that keeping their eyes on the presence of God and on his glory was what guided them and what told them where to go and when to go. Now, as we know, sadly, they didn't stay in God's will. And God's plan had been to take them from there to the promised land. But because when they got to the edge of the promised land, they chose to rather believe the reports of the fearful spies than the truthful reports of Joshua and Caleb. God didn't let them enter into the land. But nonetheless, as they wandered around in their wanderings, God still directed them. God didn't abandon them, although they were being punished. And following an obedience is is a prerequisite to true fellowship with God. Now, when we become Christians, when we become believers and we make a commitment to accept Jesus as Lord, when, in the words of Paul to the Romans, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, well, that implies obedience. Of course, as we thought this morning, the very first thing that that obedience calls for is baptism. And I would just reiterate what was said by Tim this morning. Baptism is, is not something that you sort of wait until you've achieved some level of Christianity and understood all the books of the Bible backwards or, or anything else that you want to put in there. Baptism is what the Lord commands you should do when you become a believer, and if he's your Lord, the demonstration of that is the obedience. So bear that in mind, anyone who's, who's not baptized, that, that that's a step. And we saw that this morning with Eve taking that, uh, that step and last month with, with Alan doing the same. But these people, they were later to not obey. And they lost the fellowship with God that they were enjoying at this point. And that lack of following and obedience was the cause of it. And so it's important that we remember still that to follow in obedience allows us to maintain good fellowship with, with God. Because when we don't obey, when we disobey, 
and there's sin in our life that's unconfessed, then our fellowship is damaged with God. When we're burdened with sin in our heart, we can't pray the way that we used to. The guilt within us at that sin prevents us serving God as we should. Yeah, maybe we turn up and do things. Maybe we're here, you know, and maybe we're participating in things that have the appearance of service, but we're not serving as we should. And that's where these people in Israel went wrong after this great thing. The Lord was with them, and the cloud dictated whether they should move or not move, but they kind of lost the obedience in due course. I was going to have taken time to read uh, the, the verses and numbers that tell us about that, but it's um, too lengthy to take time to read to, uh, to read at this stage. But what um, I was going to go back to was number seven tells us that on the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, i.e. the end of the first part we read, and had anointed and consecrated it and so on and so forth, the chiefs of Israel, heads of their father's houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes, approached and brought their offerings before the Lord. And verse 12 says, He who offered his offering on the first day was Nashon, the son of Abinadab, of the tribe of Judah. And his offering was one silver plate, whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of ten shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Nashon, the son of Aminadab. And so it goes on for the second day right through to the twelfth day. And the chapter's quite lengthy. There are 89 um, verses uh, in that chapter. And the, you know, these 12 days, they bring the same thing. And they, and they re, the different people each bring the same thing as, as I read about. And they bring their offerings. And in these 12 days, these offerings were made. And then we read uh, in what is verse 89 of chapter 7, which is the bit I was wanting to come to. When Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, remember he hadn't been able to because the glory of the Lord overwhelmed him. But when the time came, when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. God's voice spoke to Moses from above the ark, from above the mercy seat, between the two cherubim, from the place of propitiation, the basis in which God was able to converse with Moses, to speak with him. It was in the basis of his mercy and the basis of a sacrifice given and of course, that points us forward to the one by whom we can come to God. 
and we can pray to him and hear his voice speak to us. It's on the basis of God's mercy and of his son, who is the propitiation for our sins. You know, we, we've learned a lot as we've gone through um, in the book of Exodus. Um, I certainly have enjoyed it. I trust, I trust we've all enjoyed it as we've gone through the book and learned a lot about how God deals with his people, how he dealt with these people at that time and by thinking forward how he deals with us, his people now. And of the great way in which these things pointed forward to the work of Christ. And everything in the scripture, of course, points to him. But remind us that it was God's desire to be with his people. And once the tabernacle had been made in accordance with God's requirements, his glory filled the tabernacle. But that covenant was conditional. And the conditions sadly weren't, didn't continue to be met. So eventually God's glory departed. And of course the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, we've no idea where it is. And in 1 Samuel 4, we read of the, the capture of the ark by the Philistines and the death of Eli and his sons. The corruption of the high priesthood was stinking by that time. What Eli's sons were doing was despicable. And Eli's daughter-in-law, when she heard the news that the ark had gone, that her father-in-law had died and that her husband had died, she seems to have been triggered to give birth to the son that she was carrying. And as you probably know, she named him Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. Well, we live in the benefit of a new eternal covenant. And the glory will not depart from us. And indeed, we will go to see that glory. And we will revel in it for all eternity. Last Sunday morning, when Boya was uh, preaching from the first part of Romans chapter one, he mentioned, of course, that the ultimate purpose of the gospel is the glory of God. And the wonderful thing is that we are not depending as our hymn said, on what our hands have done. We are depending on what the Son of God has done. And he is the one in whom all the, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And his glory will not depart from him, nor wonderfully, it will not depart from us, for we shall see it in its fullness when we're taken to be with him. And that should spur us to greater things. So as we've thought about Exodus, as we draw to a close, we've thought of a people who made great progress from being slaves in Egypt 
to surrounding the place where God was pleased to dwell in that tabernacle as he would take them to the land that he had promised but which the majority, which all of the adults, bar Joshua and Caleb, would never see. We can learn lessons. And the wonderful thing is we can give thanks for the one to whom it points, who has secured for us eternal blessings, not because we deserve it, not because you or I are better than these people who disobeyed in the wilderness, but because he's chosen us to be his. Let's remember that as we think of the challenge of being obedient and following in his will day by day. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and Father, we give thanks that we can read from your word of events that happened many years ago and still learn lessons from them. We give thanks that there was that time when things had been made to your satisfaction that you, your glory filled the tabernacle. But Father, we give thanks for one who did things completely to your satisfaction. And as a result, your wrath is turned aside, you're wholly satisfied, and your glory will be in him. And he in you, and wonder of wonders, we will participate in that. Father, help us to live our lives in obedience and in your will, seeking to live in your will day by day. We pray that we may do the things that are obviously commanded of us and that we may seek out to find the things that are not so obvious and follow in them. And we ask these things, praying in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.